Global Encryption Day, Romance Scams with a Cryptocurrency Twist, and Siphoning Data from Airgap Networks. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Naked Security Podcast. I am Doug. He is Paul. And we have a full docket here today. We like to start the show with a fun fact. And we have a personal fun fact this week. Fun fact, Paul. (laughs) Thank you, Doug. You will be doing a live malware demo at the TBX, or Tech Business Accelerate Conference, on November 3rd and 4th. That is correct, Doug. This is an event that takes place in Utrecht in the Netherlands. But because of... For coronavirus reasons, you can attend in person. It's free if you want to register. Or you can join from anywhere in the world online. And at 11.30 Dutch time on 3rd and 4th of November, indeed, I'll be taking some modern multi-stage malware that goes all the way from a spearfish to a remote control backdoor implanted by the crooks by means of PDFs, Visual Basic, C-sharp, XML files, fileless malware, and all that stuff. It's a technical subject, but it's a demonstration more than an analysis. And I aim to avoid jargon and talk in plain English. So if you want to know how the crooks do this, and if you're a malware researcher, how you would go about finding out what the malware does, I'll give you some idea of the tricks, tools, and techniques that you can use for fighting back against the crooks, too. I will be there. It is uh, called. Live malware demo, figuring out the crooks, and you can register for free at tbxevent.nl. Yes, that's Tango Bravo, Bravo X-ray event.nl. Okay, a little bit more housekeeping. Cybersecurity Awareness Month rolls on. This week, we've got a great piece about cybersecurity careers. If you head over to nakedsecurity.sophos.com, you can read the stories of how six Sophos employees got their starts in the biz. These are six day-in-the-life stories. We've also selected some past stories about how cybersecurity professionals think. So we explain web shells, 2,000 years of cryptography, Pi Day, and a Y2K-style event for the Global Positioning System, or GPS. Yes, my particular interest in the last four of those, the so-called Serious Security series on naked security. They're my favorite articles to write. And as you say, there are those six Sophos staffers who've come out and said, here's how I got into cybersecurity. And here's how I'm making sure that I end up with 20 years of experience after 20 years, not one year of experience 20 times. (laughs) It's really important never to stop learning because the crooks are, so we have to do it too. They sure are. So that uh, article is called Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Building Your Career. That is the third in the series. And next week will be the final week of Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And to give you a preview, the theme will be Cybersecurity First. And we have an exciting four bonus episodes of the podcast, about 25 minutes in length each. Yes. So if, if you see in your Naked Security podcast feed, when five podcasts appear, where you get the week's podcast and then four more... Those bonus minisodes, like you say, they're a little bit shorter than the regular ones, are the ones we're talking about. And they're specific to putting cybersecurity first. How do you do it? How do you make sure that cybersecurity really counts for something in your business? Yep. So we'll have uh, the first one is called Malware, the Never Ending Story. That's featuring Paul and Fraser Howard, our director of threat research. 
Yeah, Fraser is a fantastic world-leading cybersecurity researcher. I always describe him, and I think I do in that very podcast, describe him as a specialist in everything. So he really has that the both breadth and depth to help you understand how all these parts fit together. You know, Fraser's a very special expert when it comes to malware analysis. Yep, then we've got how to protect yourself from supply chain attacks. That's with Paul and Chester Wisniewski, who is a principal research scientist here. Yes, I'm sure nobody's forgotten Kaseya and SolarWinds and Hafnium and all of that stuff. And Chester has some really, really actionable, useful, usable advice on how to manage the risk of a supply chain attack because it's almost a life's work to try and deal with every single thing that can go wrong. He's got some great advice about how you can see the big picture and reduce your risk dramatically. And then we've got a hot topic. Does cyber insurance help or hinder crime? That's featuring Paul and Dr. Jason Nurse, Associate Professor in Cybersecurity at the University of Kent. Yes, we've spoken about Dr. Nurse on the podcast many times. He's a good chum of ours. And it's nice to have an outside expert come in and talk about cyber insurance because people tend to have a very polarized view, don't they? Mm -hmm. if, if the crooks got into your network and blew everything to smithereens and your company would have fallen apart, but for cyber insurance, you probably think it's the best thing in the world. If you're kind of sitting back and you haven't had to look down the barrel of that gun, you might be one of those people who think, oh, well, they just pay the ransoms and that makes cybercrime possible. And Jason has a fantastic, if you like, down the middle view of how we can actually embrace cyber insurance. And most importantly, if you are going to take out a policy, how can you make sure that it's the right policy and it works for you rather than just being a knee jerk reaction because you've heard it can pay when ransomware happens? Because there are an awful lot of attacks that aren't ransomware. Mm -hmm. And then a fascinating fourth and final episode called Red Team, Blue Team, A Match Made in Heaven featuring Paul and Michelle Ferenczi, who is one of our information security engineers here at Sophos. Correct. Michelle has the unenviable task of being a cybersecurity expert inside a cybersecurity company. <laughs> so I'm not trying to say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously going to be cleverer than everyone else. It's just the stakes are kind of high. And Michelle is a uh, blue teamer. She loves the blue team work. That's people who work out are we defending correctly rather than the what's sometimes seen as the glory job, the red team who just try and pound on the doors and, and the windows and see if occasionally they can smash one and break in. And she's got some fantastic insights into how the, the red team, the offensive security team, and the blue team, the defensive security team, how they can actually work together to make sure that you can, if you like, do more with less. And you know, when you mix red and blue, you sort of get purple. So if you've heard purple teaming, that's what we talk about in that podcast. Absolutely fascinating, well worth listening to. Great. So a lot going on in the month of October, including October 21st is Global Encryption Day. And we'll start getting into our main content here. Paul, we had an interesting comment on our Let's Encrypt article that we talked about a couple podcasts back. I'm paraphrasing the comment, yeah. but it was basically something along the lines of, Website encryption is too cheap and easy now, which makes it easier for criminals to make themselves look legitimate. And your response to that would be what? I think we have to remember, and we did try to make this clear in the Let's Encrypt article, that web certificates, TLS, 
the protocol, the technology that encrypts and integrity protects mainly web data in transit is not meant to be about validating, fact-checking, reviewing the actual content of what you download. And so what a lot of people say is, oh, it should be really hard to get a certificate. You should have to kind of prove yourself in some way, except that the certificate authorities that issue web certificates, their job is to make sure that the person claiming to operate website X has control over it in some way. It's really important to remember that. And if you start saying, well, let's make TLS certificates really, really expensive, and let's make them more like a quality of your company review, then you're kind of treading on the turf of things like trading standards, aren't you? Better Business Bureau, stuff like that. And the idea of Let's Encrypt is it's just to reduce the number of unencrypted websites out there that could, without TLS encryption, be subverted by almost anyone without that person needing to hack into the site in the first place. They just fiddle with the content on the way back and without some kind of integrity check, how would you ever know? So that's why we wrote that article about Let's Encrypt and said, please, if you're worried about the cost of getting web certificates, it's now down essentially to dollar zero and they've automated the renewal process. This is really important. Yes, it has made getting web certificates easier for the crooks, but seriously, do you think that the crooks who really wanted web certificates were hurting over the $99 it cost them, given that they're crooks? Yeah, I don't think the answer is even if, with their own credit cards. <laughs> even pumping it up <laughs> to a, th I mean? a thousand bucks, they wouldn't be they wouldn't bat an eye at that. What's more important is that people who genuinely in the past couldn't easily afford the time and money for web certificates, hobby sites, charities, local special interest groups, you know, not for profit organizations. The fact that it's now easy for all of those sites at least to protect what's happening between you and them. I think that makes a huge difference. That's, I think, really what Global Encryption Day is about. It's about globally encrypting stuff because that way you don't have to worry whether you forgot to encrypt something that with hindsight was actually important. So this Global Encryption Day on October 21st, I think our advice would be keep doing it. Encrypt. Yes. Don't not encrypt. And if you don't have a, a web HTTPS website yet, look into a service like Let's Encrypt, you will find that it is very, very much easier than you probably thought. Next up, we have an article called Romance Scams with a Cryptocurrency Twist. New research from Sophos Labs. And Paul, I hate to use the B word when we talk about scams, but I had to fight the urge to mutter brilliant under my breath as I got about three quarters of the way through the article because it took a twist I wasn't quite expecting. and I was just like, oh my goodness. It's, it's the kind of thing that once you read the article, you think, golly, I could have thought of that. But I'm, I kind of feel jolly glad I didn't because it makes me feel better about my own ethics, morality, <laughs> conscience. Yeah. And I think the simple way of thinking about it is that old school romance scams are typically what we've often referred to on Naked Security as long cons or long game scams, where crooks look up people on dating sites, get a list of people who've published just enough information that they think they can pretend to be someone that you like, and then they go after winning your friendship, 
then winning your trust, then winning some kind of romantic connection with you, maybe even persuade you to get engaged. You know, they're, they're, in, they're not in this for days or weeks or even months. Some of them are in it for years. And of course, there comes a point you can't meet. It's even easier with coronavirus times because you can just say, oh, well, I haven't been able to get a vaccination, so I can't get the certificate to get the plane ticket, so I can't visit. Can you send me some money? And because you've learned to trust the person, you send them reasonably large amounts of money over a possibly long period of time. So it's not like they get 10 bucks out of you and move on to the next person. They might get 100, then 800, then 600, then 250. You're investing in someone who's more than just a friend. This scam, the crooks aren't trying to persuade you to marry them. Their goal is for you to realize, well, maybe I don't want to marry this person, but they seem quite cool and they're trustworthy enough. And then they say, hey, I bet you've heard about cryptocurrency investing and you've heard all of the scams that are going on. Well, here's something with a bit of a difference. I've got an app for this. It's not just me telling you go to this website and invest. And it's a super secret app that you can't get in the app store because you actually get it from the business as a business app. Mm. Would you like to come in? And as strange as it sounds that people would believe this, you can kind of get the premise. Yeah. They're using the same social engineering as the romance scammers. So you learn to trust them. They don't need to do this for ages. They just want you to, to get you to install this trading app. Maybe I didn't miss the crypto gold rush. Maybe this I'm, I can be in, yeah. on the inside track here. And because you've got this app that isn't in the app store, it kind of feels selective, like something special. Then, of course, you're into what's known in the jargon as a, as a pyramid or a Ponzi scheme. You're not actually investing in cryptocurrency or indeed in anything. You're giving money to the crooks and they have this app and a whole cloud backend that basically feeds you a fake investment feed. Somehow it seems kind of more legitimate, doesn't it? You're getting the special app. You're not just going to any old website and signing up. Well, and the, the other brilliant part about this is the way that the app is controlled you your device is essentially turned over to them just like you would to your company as a as a mobile exactly. mobile device management they would they would actually they would be able to control your device on their end basically what they're talking you into doing is acting as though your own personal phone belongs to them as if you're an employee so they therefore have some kind of right slash obligation to look after it and if you think about what you expect from an enterprise mobile management product like, you know, Sophos mobile control, the whole idea is that if you lose your phone, IT can jump in and wipe it for you before the crooks get round to it. So that's the level of control you're handing over to these yeah. guys. So don't do that. It's <laughs> the simple advice. Yeah. Even if you think they're the most wonderful person in the world, don't do that because even if you do trust them, there's far too much that could go wrong. They're not your employer. It's not their phone. It doesn't belong to them. So even if they were reliable, you have no idea whether their network could get hacked and your phone could get taken over that way. Okay, we've got a couple other tips in there, and we got a great video uh, that Paul made a while back called Romance Scams, What to Do. So all those yes, things... The, the video is specifically about the long scams. Yeah where the crooks 
they're actually hooking you financially and emotionally. The main advice here is that if you're on any website, really, but on a dating site in particular, someone you've met through a dating site where you will inevitably have given away a little bit more about what makes you tick than perhaps elsewhere, be wary when talk suddenly turns from romance or love or even just plain old trusty friendship to money. Because all of these scams have that at some point. Now, I'm not saying that every time someone you meet someone online and money comes up that it's going to be a scam. I know people who met online and ended up getting married and they're sharing their lives together. So it can happen, but just be careful when the first time money comes up and maybe take a step back and ideally, Cybersecurity Awareness Month tip, stop, think, connect, never be in a hurry. And if you like the flip side of that tip, keep an open mind when friends and family come in and try and warn you that something you've been sucked into online might not be what you think it would be. Cyber criminals who do both this kind of scam and the romance kind of scam, they are past masters at using the fact that your friends and family are about to warn you as a way to drive a deliberate wedge between you and your family. Look, they don't get it. Don't let them know. Pretend that you've dumped me, but like, don't let them know. They, they're just trying to spoil things for you. Unfortunately, that means that there are cases where when people realise that they have been the victim of a romance-type scam, perhaps for some time, they end up not just emotionally drained themselves and perhaps significantly out of pocket, they may even end up estranged from their friends and family as well. All right, that is Romance Scams with a Cryptocurrency Twist, new research from Sophos Labs on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is time for our This Week in Tech History segment. This week, I officially declare tech history bankruptcy, not because there's nothing to talk about, but because This Week in Tech History is chock full of amazing things. What a time to be alive. And this week alone, we saw the following. October 18th, 1958, the first video game was shown off in 1958, programmed on an oscilloscope. What a time to be alive. Staying with the video game theme, this week, October 18th, 1985, the Nintendo Entertainment System was released in North America. I was there, man. What a time to be alive. Did you get the PS5 yet? No, I don't have the PS5 yet. And we won't talk about that then. No. Carry on. Okay, we jump ahead one day only to October 19th, 1979. VisiCalc was officially released. Spreadsheets, they still haunt us to this day, but what a time to be alive. And then interestingly, on October 20th, everyone took a much-needed break. Before October 21st, 1879, the first commercially viable light bulb that lasted 13 and a half hours. What an illuminating time to be alive. The same day, October 21st, 1991, the PowerBook laptops were introduced. It had a built-in trackball. What a time to be alive. I didn't warm to those, Doug. No, I didn't like them. I didn't dislike them, but I wouldn't have sought one out. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a suppressed fanboy. There you go. I think. Well, this... I can't believe I said that. I only meant to think that. <laughs> um, <laughs> then October 22nd, 1938, the first photocopy. It is a fascinating story that we don't have time for, but go ahead and look it up, and what a time to be alive then. October 23rd. 2001, the first iPod was introduced. A thousand songs in your pocket was the tagline. What a time to be alive. And how good for the environment. 
Remember how you used to get miles and miles of audio tape next to every major freeway? Yeah. Where the tape got stuck. Oh, yeah. We'd just fling it out the window. <laughs> train tracks. Because it was just like, <laughs> all this, yeah. Oh. All the tape on the train and tracks for some reason. Like, you can see why, why when Apple cracked that problem, they cracked that problem forever. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, to close out this incredible week in tech history, October 24th, 1861, the first transcontinental telegraph line was completed between the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States. What a time to be alive, unless you were the Pony Express, which hung up its saddles just two days later. Can you imagine the job of actually taking that cable across the Wild West? Oh, man, yeah. Through the Great Plains. And these guys are going with not just rolls of cable, but 1861 rolls of yeah, cable. Yeah, exactly. Hey, let's take, let's take this thin piece of wire, one strand of wire, across the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. How hard can it be? <laughs> <laughs> very, very hard. Wow. An above-average segue to our next story, if you keep the concept of <laughs> old cabling and uh, cryptography in your working memory. This uh, has been called the Lantenna Hack. And Paul, if I look around my desk here, just about everything I see is reasonably modern, except for the handful of Ethernet cables I've got running to and Yeah, you love your cables. I do love my Ethernet cables. Then you get gig from your laptop to your router and a gig from your router to the internet. Exactly. So therein therein lies the rub when we're talking about this research here. What what happens when you're still using these, these Ethernet cables have been around forever? So one of the places where people will still use network cables is where they want some kind of secure transmission in their network where they know that the signal is only going from A to B, A to C, C to D, and they can actually trace where the signals go by following the actual wires, something you can't do with free air transmissions like Wi-Fi. So the idea of wired networks is they're often used where you purposefully want to separate two networks because you have a secure network and a less secure network and you want them to, if you like, meet in an area where people can work part of their time on the insecure network and then turn around and work on stuff that is meant to be disconnected from the Internet. So that's why that's where LAN cables can still be surprisingly useful. But inside, even though they're somewhat shielded these days and they use conductors that are twisted together in pairs, so-called twisted, twisted pair down, cables, yeah. and that was invented in the very fir- early days of telephony because it reduces signal loss and the tighter you twist the cable the better your protection but if you think about it the average network cable these days they are still sort of very long antennas aren't mm-hmm. they? they're bits of wire that have data flying around on them admittedly at an enormously high signaling rate so you kind of think well surely the network leakage from a network cable you couldn't exploit that by putting code on the secure side that deliberately put data on the network that you could receive wirelessly by snooping on the emissions from the cable, could you? Not so fast, Paul. <laughs> Pun intended. You know where this is going, <laughs> yep. and you know that, that episode where Chester stepped in and he said, oh, it was something else we were talking about where leaking data at very low rates. He said, I can't wait to see what the guys at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel would do with this. Because these guys have a lot of fun doing studies about just how secure are physically secure things. Can you exfiltrate data 
just by the sound, say, that a laptop fan makes? Can you signal data by changing how the red tint on the screen? Apparently you can. So they thought, well, just how much data could you leak out of a shielded twisted pair cable if you wanted to? And just how complicated would the equipment be? You know, would you need thousands and thousands of dollars worth of oscilloscopes and radio <laughs> frequency monitors? Would you need a cabinet the size of the speakers that the band sleep use when they play <laughs> that you'd have to take into the secure area? Apparently, no. You can just about do it if you're careful with essentially a $25 software-defined radio USB dongle. By writing software, you can use it to tune into different types of transmission. So if you want it to be a door opener, you could tune into that frequency. If you wanted it to listen to the signaling events that happen at, say, 125 or 250 megahertz leaking out of a LAN cable, you could do it. And you wouldn't need to go and build special hardware. Hmm. You buy your $25, if you want the, the, the flasher one, maybe $99 worth of actually open source hardware. And then, you know, you hide it in something like your car keys, your car key fob. And then you just listen for signals that have been deliberately placed on the network wire that you don't have to connect to. You don't even have to put a little coil around the wire or go into the, the server room where the cables are. You just put some specially agreed signals on the wire, maybe some arbitrary UDP packets that don't really mean to go anywhere, but are otherwise harmless. And then by the pattern of when you're sending and when you're not sending, someone in the insecure area with one of these dongles, in theory, can actually pick up the changes in data that you're transmitting, apparently without purpose on the secure network. And Doug, to give you an idea of how slightly far-fetched this is, you are looking at a, a data rate of approximately one bit per second. <laughs> so that is 400 bytes an hour, Oof. or in more accessible terms, one full-length movie per millennium. <laughs> which compares to what was it the other day you had 57,000 movies a second <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on that yeah, super fast yeah, Japanese yeah, network yeah. <laughs> so you're thinking well what use is that however imagine that all you want to leak is 256 bits of symmetric encryption key mm -hmm, yeah. or 256 bytes of cryptocurrency private key wallet file well you can do it inside a working day. And it would be quite hard for anyone to notice what was going on because your signal would be essentially hidden amongst the noise. Mm -hmm. Steganography, as it is often called, the art of hiding in plain sight. This, this sounds like the, the, app, the best application for this would be you're trying to target a specific person, get a specific person's cryptographic key. Is this something that could be used as a, it's just a sniffer, it's just grabbing data as it can, or could you target this to look for this person, look for this person's key and grab it? Ah, the important thing is that what this is doing is not reading the emanations that leak out of the cable and reconstructing 
the data signal that was on there in the first place. Okay. It's not like you're getting to a network cable and you're cutting it and you're crimping a, a connector on each end and plugging it into an interception device. The idea here is more subtle. What you're doing is you're assuming that there's someone with malicious intent on the secure network side who wants to implant something that will leak data, but the system is designed to prevent even malicious operators from doing that. So the idea is what if you could just put data onto the network cable in a particular pattern, say UDP packet, broadcast packet, and then you're either sending the packet or you're not sending the packet. Or another trick that the researcher here discovered, which is quite a cunning plan if you have root access or sysadmin access and you're not in a virtual machine, is that most network cards that you change network speed, don't they? 100 meg, 1 gig, 100 meg, 1 gig. Yeah. If it happens occasionally when the network isn't busy, so you don't notice, oh, everything's slowed down, it turns out that just the act of changing the network encoding speed for a specific short unit of time, going up to a gig, down to 100 meg, up to a gig, each of those can basically act as a zero or a one in an encoding system that you can detect with your $25 or your $99 hardware. So you're not snooping on what's going on. It's not like eavesdropping, like, oh, I've embedded a microphone or I've, I've got something that can read other people's data. Okay. It's just a way of putting your own data on the cable in a way that you can retrieve it without having to go near the network and connect something where you would probably get spotted. So what you're doing is you're, you're basically adding what looks like noise to the signal in such a way that it is just about detectable as data rather than noise up to one or two meters away. And in a secure network that is designed for air gapping, as it's called, mm -hmm. i.e. designed for physical separation, that's not supposed to be possible. That's the whole idea. Should people be doing things to avoid this? And if so, what, what can they do? Is this a big enough potential problem yet? Well, not really for just about everybody. I think reason zero you can learn for this is sometimes there are some really cool cybersecurity research jobs <laughs> in academia. Yeah. <laughs> and this is one of them. Yeah. On the other hand, the idea of pushing the envelope is it does force us regularly to revisit and challenge assumptions we've made. Like that assumption I mentioned at the beginning. You've got a cabled network. There's no way that anyone can get any useful data off the network by radio frequency emissions. It's too hard. So challenging that is important. So I think if you do have a secure network and you have relied on Cat5e or you know, traditional LAN type cables, copper cables, rather than say going for fiber, which where obviously this particular attack wouldn't apply if everything was connected to everything else by fiber. Good luck even in a secure network getting the budget for that. Yeah, I, guess. Sir, I was just going to say. But if you do have a secure network and you're genuinely concerned about, well, what could escape through unexpected wireless or radio frequency methods, just make the insecure side of your network more secure. Like, don't let people take in their mobile phones. Don't let them take in unknown USB devices. Just be stricter and don't let people bring in their own hardware. And a lot of secure areas already do that. 
The second thing you can do if you're worried is you could look at cabling with better shielding. Not all cable shielding is made equal. There are minimum standards. My understanding is that the higher the number after CAT, the higher the data rate it can support. Mm -hmm. And to support the higher data rate, the cable has to basically protect itself from interfering with itself. So generally, the twisted pairs are twisted tighter. That reduces emanations, I believe. Then each twisted pair might be shielded. I believe in CAT8 it is. And then the bundle of cables are shielded as well. Of course, those cables are also much more expensive. And another thing you could do if you're on a secure network is you could monitor for things like unexpected speed changes in network cards. That's very specific to this attack, but that was where the researcher got the highest data rate. Well, it's fascinating something like, too, yeah. Something like 10 bits per second and over a longer distance. And the other two things you could consider doing if you wanted you could install a radio frequency jammer that jammed in the 125, 250, it's a multiple hmm. frequency range, yeah. because that's the fundamental, I believe that's the fundamental signaling frequency used by Ethernet. That means the fake noise added to the real noise will then get swamped by more fake noise that the bad guys don't control. And lastly, if you're worried about people using bursts of traffic that look innocent, you could consider having random background UDP broadcasts or, or packet broadcasts on your own network, which is, it's again, a rather specific sort of uh, counterattack. But basically, once again, you're creating fake noise that you aim to be slightly louder than the fake noise that's already slightly louder than the real data. You're attempting to drown out this process hopefully therefore either making it not work at all or work at not even one movie per millennium. <laughs> the main interest in this article, of course, is if you are a blue team defensive <laughs> yeah. uh, security get member, it's, some a, new it's a goodies. great way to get budget for your, for your <laughs> software-defined radio dongles because they're not that expensive. Yeah. Hey, if the crooks might have them, and probably do, if you haven't already got one, maybe it is actually worth the company splashing a hundred bucks mm -hmm. to get one because they're great fun but they are a surprisingly valuable tool in the modern cyber criminals arsenal and this research no matter how esoteric and offbeat it might sound is a great reminder of that never say never when it comes to cyber security well it's a fascinating article it's called lantana hack spies on your data from across the room sort of and as the sun begins to set on episode 55 of season three, we leave you with our own no of the week. And on Reddit, user Danakius writes about the nuclear option to enforce the rule of not plugging phones into work computers. Here you are, secure network yeah. versus insecure network, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Someone in upper management. <laughs> We're not worried about Wi-Fi. worried about people actually just <laughs> plugging them in yeah. where they're not supposed to. So, so it sounds like someone in upper management here. I can't decide if this person is... Um, smart but fed up or just not smart but it's uh, it's not super glue is it oh uh, well listen here we go so Tell he it's says not super glue um, he writes the company or institution not saying which i work for has had it that means it's probably an institution an institution has otherwise you just say the company <laughs> yeah has had it for with people plugging phones into their computers this week my job is to take everyone's tower one by one and make the following modifications one 
remove the wiring going to any case-mounted USB devices. Two, superglue the Logitech mouse and keyboard dongle into the back USB port and block the rest in. Oh, when I said superglue, I just meant blocking the ports. No. And the... So they want them connected, but they want them glued in. Only, only the, the Logitech has a universal USB receiver that connects to the keyboard and the mouse, so they want that superglued in and the rest of the USB ports blocked. But, number three, install a hidden USB port inside of the case to connect USB mass storage devices to if needed for IT needs. And then finally four, install USB charging stations so everyone has at least two open USB ports on their desk for charging their phones and smartwatches. So today was my first dozen computers I locked down and about an hour after completing the first one, we get a ticket from a user complaining that his USB charger isn't working. Of course, he's trying to plug it into the computer and it's been disconnected in the front and blocked in the back and... I oh, I thought you said the glue hadn't dried and he plugged it <laughs> yeah. in and then he couldn't get, get it out. out. That's even better. <laughs> no, yeah. So not, not a lot of uh, problem solving here other than just gluing everything shut, which I found I just got kind of tickled by that. So anywho, if you have a no-no that you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at Sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles. You can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.